Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am really excited for this week's episode because I'm here with Mike Zemanski, who started the Stuyvesant High School Computer Science Program, helped build the New York State Teacher Certification Program, I believe the first one that launched. And you recently retired, but you've had a huge influence on computer science education in New York City and beyond. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Hey, I'm super excited to be here. Awesome, man. Well, We know each other. And so I feel like I know a little bit of your background already. And I've been reading your blog for many years as well. But for anyone who's not as familiar with your work, I'd love to start with a little bit of background and sort of your origin story. How did you end up, you know, teaching CS and building this program? It was all kind of, it just happened. I talked to people like, oh, you had this, like, oh, you did this important thing, or you worked on this. And you know, oh, you tried to do this and it failed. And it was, you know, but it was such a, so important to try. And I'm like, well, no, I kind of, I like to say I Mr. Magoo'd my career. And for anybody who is younger, they may not know Mr. Magoo was a cartoon character who couldn't see basically. And he would just wander around, like he'd walk out the open window, but right before he would fall, he would land on the construction beam and it would get to the ground right when he got to the other end of it. Or then he'd walk over a manhole that was open, but a construction worker would pop up and he'd walk on his head. So it just kind of one thing led to another. So I started out doing computer science in college, and this was in the 80s. And I got my degree. And like everybody else at the time, you either went to grad school or you went to Wall Street if you wanted to be in New York City. I didn't want to commute out to New Jersey an hour and a half each way to Bell Labs or to IBM up north. So I did the Wall Street thing. It wasn't satisfying. I do the teaching as a lark. So I gave it a go and I taught at in a school on the Lower East Side, probably the most important immigrant high school, maybe in the country. A lot of famous first generation Americans went to Seward Park and got their start there, taught math for a couple of years, I got excessed. And what that means is the Board of Ed sends too many teachers for too few positions in the school. So you're in excess. There are too many of you. And I was bumped. Fortunately, I landed on my feet at Stuyvesant High School. That was partially because I was a student there in high school when I went to high school. And that's a public magnet high school in New York City, if people may not know that. Taught math for a couple of years there, but I'm a CS guy and I started teaching CS. And that was great for a couple of years and I was enjoying it. And a lot of it was also serendipitous. Like I was just going to teach my CS, but I hated grading geometry exams because proofs suck. And so I'm like, man, I got to create a new elective. You know, these just things kind of happen. And then one day I'm pretty proud of myself, patting myself on the back. And it's like, oh man, my kids are doing great. Sarah just came in top 16 in this world programming competition. And Dan just came in top five. And then I realized that these kids were really like super geniuses and probably would be doing okay without me. And so I kind of figured I had to do better. So that's where you know, I had to do more. So I refocused myself on the typical Stye kid. And that's what started getting me involved in computer science education. In the greater scheme, I ended up getting very involved in the city, was involved in the creation of the Academy for Software Engineering, which was a great thing. But, you know, I kind of, the board of Ed and I had some issues with that. But I ended up working in the cs for all movement, you know, got to know a lot of great people, got to work on some very interesting projects. And after a quarter century of that, it was time to move on. A friend of mine said, don't do anything. I want you to talk to Hunter College. Turned out they wanted someone to build an undergraduate honors CS program. The idea behind that is in New York City, you can get great CS education. If you go to Columbia, if you go to NYU, but you can also spend $75,000 a year. We needed something better, you know, cheaper and as good. And so I created that program at Hunter. And also in my sty days, so many of my students were by then in the industry. It also let me connect Hunter CS with the tech industry. 
And the other hat they wanted me to wear was the teacher certification hat. So we lobbied New York State and said, hey, New York, you really need teacher certification because this is really important. We can't have it as the Wild West where you've got like this teacher knows CS but doesn't know how to teach. This teacher knows how to teach but doesn't know CS. This teacher is teaching Microsoft Word. This teacher is doing their best but is a Latin teacher and God bless is working day and night to do this. So we really need a certification area. And we finally got the state to approve that. We got our program approved. There are a couple other programs that are now have now since been approved. And in the last three years, we've been certifying teachers. So New York now has 100 certified teachers who know CS and know how to teach it. And that's just so important. That's kind of the short version, even though I probably rambled on too long. I mean, it's great. And, you know, it's funny because like, you probably know this because I know you've listened to a couple episodes. Most of the folks I talk to work in corporate environments, right? They're in DevRel for the most part. Some of them have teaching experience, but like most don't. And a lot of them consider training developers, especially on their platforms as part of their remit. They don't necessarily have formal education backgrounds. And you know, people have a lot of opinions, right? Like I have a lot of opinions, you know, I work tangentially to education, but I've never been a teacher. And, you know, it's an interesting space. Like, one of the things I was really thinking about, and I saw it come up again and again on your blog, when I was, you know, researching for this episode, is sort of the gap in what's expected between collegiate CS programs and K-12, and how you've sort of like, been thinking about building that certification, but also building Hunter's CS program. I'd love to explore that for a minute. Like, what is the difference between a K-12 CS curriculum and an academic one? Because there's a lot of critiques, especially of college ones, but I haven't heard quite as many from the industry of K-12. That's really great. That's that's like how much time we have. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So one thing that's important to think about, and this has come up at least on maybe not directly, but it's certainly in the room in all of your podcasts that I've listened to. You know, is it the CS degree, the code school, the self-taught? So I think we have to kind of just say a couple of words about the college level and what's going on in the transition from high school to college right now in order to start to address the high school side. And I think that's an issue where one of the issues in college is Computer science programs do not align with what the majority of computer science students are looking for. I was talking to a couple of people who are in important places at a very prestigious computer science institution. And I'm like, you know, you're working so hard for your students, but all the programs are designed so that students are supposed to get PhDs. But we all know that 90% of the students don't want to get PhDs. And one of these two people wagged his finger at me. It's like, Mike, you know what? That's exactly fill in the blank with the college's name problem. You know, and it's everywhere. And so you have that, but then you have the code schools, which give a vocational training, but it's more limited in scope and it's get you that job now. You know, it's a workforce program and that also fulfills an important niche. And there are a few software engineering programs and there are a few boutique programs as well, but that's, that's the minority. But then you also have CS minors, which we never talk about. And CS minors can be really, could fill in the gap and give the right mix for the professional to be. But too many of them are just pre-major programs. And similarly, the community colleges have a similar issue to the minors. Are we part of the community and setting these kids up for a job? Or are we setting them up to go to an academic four-year program that's then only going to send them to the doctorate? So that's the college mess. Now we can talk about the high school. At high school, I think we have a few jobs. And this goes across every subject area. One is a well-educated person should have some baseline knowledge in all subject areas. They should know a little bit of biology. They should know a little bit of physics. They should be exposed to a language other than their native language. They have some grasp of history. And similarly, they should know some computer science. They should be exposed to what is that? What does that mean? Deeper for all the subjects, ideally, you want people to be able to think like those fields. 
So, for example, there's um, we now talk about computational thinking, but I, you know, I also, but a poet thinks about the world in a different way. A musician, a chef, a, a historian. You know, and I've talked about this for years, and I was listening to a keynote by a computer science educator, great guy, his name is Mark Guzdell, and he was giving this talk. He's like, wow, I was researching this, and I found out that there's this thing called historical thinking and mathematical, you know, and these are actually, you know, just like we're doing computational thinking now, educators have looked at these in other fields, and we want our students to be able to look at the world through those lenses, no matter what they do. So if you're on Wall Street, one of my students was on the Wall Street, uh, was uh, working on the Enron case. He was working for the Blackstone, whoever it was back in the day. And they were all super high powered MBAs and this young kid. But this young kid looked at the problem as a graph theory programming problem, coded it up on his laptop. And he was, you know, Wall Street whiz in Wall Street week and a couple, you know, because he looked at the world as a computer scientist. And then we also want to inspire these kids and give them enough so they know what they're getting into in college if they want. And that's a real problem now because we have the hot field, right? Computer science is the it field. And we have a lot of people doing computer science or trying to go into computer science who probably shouldn't be. And can they do it? Yes, if the college lets them. But is it their calling? Are they going to be happy doing that? It, or is it they're following the money? Or is it following the hype? It's back, like in my day, everyone went to business school. That's what you did. And a few years later, everyone went to law school. I can't tell you how many unhappy lawyers are in my generation, many of whom left and became teachers. Because And now we're seeing that with CS. And part of what the K-12 teacher has to do before it's too late is give that picture, give an accurate picture, so that a kid can say, this is for me, I want to study computer science, or I don't want to study computer science, I want to study data science or software engineering, or I want to know enough so that I can instead study international studies or political science, but apply these CS concepts. And at the core, that's what a K-12 CS teacher needs to do. And of course, it means different things in different grades. But it means you've got to have deep subject area knowledge and how to teach it. And you have to have this big picture of you. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> I think I generally agree with your premise, which is that in order to know what you want, you have to try it, right? Like to really like oversimplify it. But, you know, when you think about the idea of someone going into tech or going into computer science and realizing they're not, that's not what they want to do all day, right? What are the alternatives, right? Because there is an argument to be made that in the modern world, tech and computer science are part of every other discipline by default. And either you are a consumer of that, you know, end product, or you have some hand in shaping it and creating it. Yeah, no, and that's, um, that's not to say that you shouldn't do any computer. I mean, obviously, you're taking some of it in K-12, and you need an, enough knowledge, as they say, to be dangerous. So you definitely need that. And I personally feel that everyone benefits from some programming or coding background and some basic knowledge of some computer science fundamentals. And of course, that's always changed. You know, like understanding a little bit about, you know, now the hot topic are LOMs and AI, you know, so that wasn't even on, you know, last year it was um, blockchain. So you need enough, and you're not going to know all of this, but you need enough fundamentals on the programming side, but also on the general tech CS computing side, so that when these new things come out, you've got your BS meter, you've got, you know, you're not like just dependent on, oh, uh, the new hype or whatever. But if you have a good preparation in high school, you'll be closer. You know, you're not going to necessarily be at the level of programming that I think you should be. And that's just my personal opinion. So you'd want to take something in common. But that's very different than saying, I'm going to be a CS major, and now you have to take Calc 1, Calc 2, Calc 3, uh, Theory of Computation, you know, all of these courses that, you know, so many of my students are software engineers at, you know, all the big companies, you know, and some of them use their calculus, and some of them, you know, use 
their linear algebra and some of them use, but by and large, you know, the last, you know, I go, oh, when did you, last time you knew some of that stuff that you did in your second, third, fourth year? It's like, yeah, that was to get by the interview. So they probably do need something in college, but college has got to really look at it. You know, they've got to look internally and think, hey, are we serving our students right? Because a lot of places still have that. You're going all the way in that CS model, and that clearly isn't it for a lot of our kids, or it's nothing, or it's you've got to fit into this packed curriculum where you're trying to be a bio major or whatever, you know, and then you have real issues like, like I'm at Hunter. We're a public, or I just retired from Hunter. We're a public school. We had big problems with the last administration in New York because you had de Blasio and Cuomo, and it was like, we're like the kid of the parents who are divorcing. You know, so our budget is always so bare. So we can barely run enough electives for the kids in the major, let let alone that philosophy major who's going to really benefit from that web dev class. So, but at least if they have that background from high school, they've got a shot. You know, and if they can't do it in college, they can go to free code camp and maybe, and that's not for everybody because a lot of kids need the support of a class, but at least they have a better shot. So you started talking a little bit around this idea of the sort of like theory and fundamentals of computer science versus the practice of software engineering. And I know you've written pretty extensively about this too. Like, where does CS and a coding bootcamp begin, right? Like, I'm curious, like, in your estimation, like, what percentage of people getting CS degrees might be better served by just going into a software engineering or bootcamp program? I think there's boot camps, I think, have a fundamental problem. Well, they have a few fundamental problems. And I do not mean to, you know, broad brush strokes here because they're not all the same. But in and a lot- I think I'm using them as a stand in yeah. vocational software engineering yeah. training. Yes. And I think one of the biggest problems with the boot camps are by and large, they don't know how to teach well, but they pre screen their applicants. To succeed, it's kind of like once you make it into elite private school, elite college, you know, you're going to have that on your resume for life. But the truth, you've been pre-screened. When we were making the Academy for Software Engineering, there was a big debate about should the screen be school, be screened or not? Should you have an academic criteria to get into the school? And the Board of Ed was, no, we are not doing it. And I said, you're being disingenuous. You've got two choices. If you're saying you want to make Google-ready engineers by the end of high school, they have to come in with a certain level of background. You can't be two years behind in math and expect them to be Google-ready software engineers by the end of their senior year. On the other hand, so if you're saying there's no screen, then just you have to stop saying you're going to make Google-ready engineers in four years. Just say this is an unscreened school. It's going to be awesome. We're going to get you to the next level. And either way you go, that's going to be terrific. But the Board of Ed wouldn't stand for that because, you know, they got to have their PR and their hype and they can never be wrong. And so they went to this meeting I was in and there were all these founders, you know, company founders and VP engineering. It was like the executive board on this. And so the board of federal said, what do you look for in an interview? And says, oh, well, we look for the ability to work in a team. We look for creative. And they mentioned all of these soft skills and all these things. And then the board of ed guy looked at me smugly. And then I turned to the crowd and said, and where do you look for these people? And they're like, well, MIT, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon. So that's a problem with the code school. And the other problem is it's too short. It's good for what it is in that it'll turn you around and get you that entry level job. And if you're earning minimum wage, you know, at wherever at Starbucks, this is a tremendous thing to go to 60 to $120,000 after a six month boot camp. If you're that self starter, that autodidact that can handle it. So I don't mean to denigrate that. I think that is a great thing, but you can't in six months. It's too much too soon. But on the other hand, if you had a year to a two-year software engineering program, you know, and this is where I think the community colleges are really dropping the ball nationwide because they really have a great opportunity here. I think for the majority of CS majors, they'd be better served with that type of program. You know, basically have your programming CS1 course, your data structures CS2 course, not a traditional algorithms course. 
but you know, work some of that into the data structures. But in the data structures course, you don't have to build everything quite to the same level. You can kind of make it a little bit more practical. In the meantime, there are a lot of things that I do when I teach these courses, either at Hunter to my undergrads or Stuyvesant or to my teachers, where I try to work the software engineering into the class. Like the typical computer science class is make sure to comment your code. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have to put enough comments in to get it by the auto grade. Whereas we talk about, you know, we develop using sub goal labeling, which is now an academic term, but it comes from what I used to do on Wall Street a hundred years ago, which was outline my program and comments and then fill it in. You know, we talk about scout, but we actually work those in. We can't do everything. That's where we need a legit software engineering program because you can't talk about architecting a large project, can't talk about integrations. I mean, that was one of the things that I did at Stuyvesant before I left is I had an opportunity to make a software, it's a software development course, but it was really like, this was all the kids, all my kids coming back and saying, you know, I say, well, what didn't you learn in college? What really did you? And they're like, we need to know how to take something from concept to delivery. We need to know how do we integrate like a database with a programming language? How do we deal with deployment? And that's how that class was created. But the colleges don't have that. Again, the by and large, the CS programs don't have that. I don't want to get it. Don't yell at me. Some do, but not enough. I think this relates back to another kind of like theme that I saw in some posts that a lot of college CS professors are actually behind K-12 CS teachers in terms of their own pedagogical understanding of how to teach these concepts, right? Like, what do you think is going on there? Why why is that? Well, it just makes sense. I get into trouble because I go to CS ed conferences and I've got friends who are college-level educators, you know, and many of them I respect to the end of days, but then there are others that, but then there are a lot of people who are experts. And this is not just computer science. These are also education professors. But people who study education are not teaching. They're studying education. And if you look at, it's just a very fundamental difference in that if you're a professor, even if you're teaching, you know, a teaching professor, a clinical professor, or a lecturer, you may be teaching three or four classes a semester, You meet the classes twice a week. You are never trained to do it. The students expect a lecture and you are giving them a lecture. Now, there are many college professors who are trying to do better, you know, and trying to do more and bringing in active learning and doing all sorts of wonderful things. But if you look at the machine, it's not optimized for teaching, you know, for the improvement of teaching. Then if you're a research professor, you're not hired for teaching. You're not promoted for teaching. You know, it's a second thought. Now, on the other hand, when I was teaching high school, I'm in show one starts at eight in the morning and I'm going, I got my five classes a day. They're all, even if they're the same subject, they're all different. And I, between classes, I go to my, you know, the teacher's lounge or the workroom, whatever. Am I doing research? What am I doing? I'm kvetching to the other teachers about how horrible my day went. You know, we're talking shop, you know, and then it starts over again the next day and it's 24 seven. You know, it's kind of like they talk about that, you know, the, um, the explicit practice. So even though the feedback loop for education is incredibly slow, if you're a teacher, you know, that's what you're doing. You are all about your classes all the time. And if you're in college, if you're a professor, even if you fancy yourself a researcher who teaches, the research is going to occupy, you know, so even if you have two people with equal teaching chops coming in, the K-12 teacher is going to get better, faster, and go soar higher as a teacher just because of the nature of the job. And the professor is going to be deeper in their subject area. They're going to know it more deeply. They're going to do more interesting things with it. They're going to make some wonderful breakthroughs, but it's a different thing. But neither one is really gaining industry experience while they teach or research, which is the other thing that people touch on all the time is like disconnect between what you do on the job as a programmer and, you know, what you learn in the classroom. And there's so many facets to this, right? It's like, what programming languages, what tooling, what concepts, what assignments, like, is that important? I guess we'll start there. And then how do you sort of like bridge that gap? That was something else that came up with back in those meetings for for the Academy for Software Engineering Development. And um, our mutual friend, Evan, actually had the response on this where one of the uh, VP engineerings was Adam, like, why aren't you doing Ruby? Because Ruby was really hot at that point in time. And that 
person's company had a Ruby platform. And Evan said, and I have to give Evan credit. I can't take credit for this, you know, because I hope Evan is listening to your podcast. You know, and he's like, well, because if we did that, then next year you'd be saying, why aren't they doing in whatever the next language is? But on the other hand, you have to do some language or multiple languages, depending on what you're doing. And so you want to do something that makes sense. You know, if there's a purely academic reason, like my intro course at Sci started with Scheme, or now it's known as Racket, but I never would use that in a summer program or at Hunter. I used it at Sty because I had a particular student body. And when I created the course, I had a certain reputation. So I could get away with it. I, you know, they'd give you the benefit of the doubt. But then later on, we do Python. And then in the AP course, they do Java. And then in a systems course, we do C. So there are different tools. And of course, the, the software engineering class, we go back to Python, but we also have a big JavaScript presence in there. So you do have to make decisions on that. The problem is it's really, it's hard. Teachers and professors and industry people, we all have full-time jobs, you know, so we don't have a lot of time, you know, to find out what the other person is doing. I don't know. Maybe I did this because I came from industry originally, but I always worked hard at it of kind of keeping form for my students. Maybe it was because I've been very fortunate in that a lot of students have kept in touch with me over the years and become friends, so I would get that. But it's something we have to work at. And I think part of it, and I see this more at college, I think there's a little bit more hubris at the college level for professors who are like, well, we know, you know, why do you know? Well, because I knew somebody 20 years ago at a tech company and that everybody does this. Like my students are still 16, even if they're 40 years old with kids, you know, you learn something until something comes to shift your mind view. But it's funny, I was thinking about this yesterday. Before COVID, I used to have these teacher meetups. And basically, you know, a company donates space and pizza and, you know, shout out to both Yext and DigitalOcean because they've always been so helpful. Google also, you know, and hopefully they'll provide us space again next year. But then COVID happened. And when I announced my retirement, they're like, my, the teachers in the program was like, no, you can't retire. I'm like, what do you care? You're all graduating. You're not going to need me anymore. But they're like, we should still have these meetups and we got to have good PD. And so I just thought about this the other day. It's like, you know what we got to do? We got to do the speed dating again. And this was something I did at Stuyvesant 100 years ago. And I had, I brought about like 50 to 70 of my kids along with like 50 to 70 of my graduates. And I introduced them to things about tech. But we've got to do the same thing with teachers. You know, we got to have meetups with teachers and get our friends in tech into the same room and have them all talk shop. And the teachers can really explain to the tech people what's really going on. And the tech people, you know, in this way, when it comes up, oh, you should be using Ruby, you know, the teacher can push back. But then on the other hand, when the teacher says, we're going to be doing this, and the other thing, the tech person is like, yeah, but they don't really need that. This is what they really need, you know, even if it's not a specific language. And we've got to get these people in that same room. So yeah, that's actually going to be my first meetup when, you know, get these going again next year. The college could be the same thing, but there's got to be that. One of the problems is somebody has to drive. Like I am betting if I do this and I start pushing my communities, they will come together. But I'm betting as soon as I stop, you know, and the thing is that there's no thanks for this. It's not a job. So I'm going to do it as long as it's fun. But when it's no longer fun for me, who else is going to do it? And that's a real, this is actually, I think, a problem. And I know I'm rambling, but like I've talked to people at the big tech companies that, you know, like who fancy themselves as having an obligation and, you know, to more than just their company to the greater tech community and have education efforts. But most of their education efforts are misguided. And something as simple as this is once every couple of months, have a dinner and bring a bunch of teachers in and bring a bunch of your engineers in. So simple, but that would go so far in empowering the teachers to better prepare their kids to see what's up next. So kind of what you're implying is that there's not really an incentive for people to do that. Teachers get PD credit and, you know, maybe you get you feel good about it, but there's no incentive structure in place to make that something that happens consistently all the time, even when the human beings involved change. And it's, um, I mean, part of it's because as a teacher, right now you're evaluated on test scores and there are no standardized computer science tests, which is good, but it also means that's got to fall to the wayside. You know, when my eighth grade exams are coming up in history and in English and in math or the regents exams in New York State for the high school levels, 
So they're not going to be evaluated on it. And also, the, just the truth is it. So I used to work on Wall Street 100 years ago, and they always talk about the long hours and it's tough and whatever else. And oh my God, it was like such a walk in the park. My first week teaching, I did not know if I was going to survive. I mean, my mom was a teacher like, mom, you didn't tell me. And she's like, I did tell you, you didn't listen. You're giving five shows a day to a captive, hostile audience. And I say hostile because we don't always want to be there no matter what. You know, even if we love our kids and we love our job. And then, you know, you got to fix things. Then you got a next one the next day. And it's this grind, you know, and I'm like, I briefly mentioned that I hated geometry. You know, I like if I've got 150 kids and if I've got two geometry classes, I've got 68 geometry students. I'm supposed to grade 68 homeworks a night and that's 68 proofs. If I'm an English teacher, I've got 150 essays a night. There just isn't the time and energy. You know, these things could happen over the summer, but the teachers still need to recharge the batteries. But if the, like, if Google or Facebook or Microsoft or Amazon said, you know, we want to make this, you know, uh, we're going to do these two or three dinners. And again, even during the school year, if you just make it a dinner, you know, free food, it could happen, but it's got to be so low friction because there's so much on teachers' plates right now. I want to go back to something that you kind of like said offhand that I'm curious about. What do you mean when you say that a lot of the education in this big companies are misguided? That's well, fine. I think it's worth it in case we can do it. But my daughter is at Meta yeah. and she loves it. She's a software engineer there, but she spent a semester teaching at Georgia State as part of their engineering residence program. And there was a lot of good in that, but it had certain key flaws. And there's another program that New York City does. And we can pick it up here if we do yeah. look at that, because it's the same floor called uh, the Tech Talent Pipeline and QD2X. Oh, yeah. And I was involved in that at Hunter. But one of the things they do is they have engineering residents where the tech, they'll send, same deal as what Meta did, they'll send an engineer to teach a course. And invariably, the engineer teaches a class. They teach a web dev elective, something like that. But then they leave, it's gone. There's no institutional memory. And what I was pushing the city to do, but they never did, was you got to have them team teach with the fundamental classes and figure out where you can push things in. You know, like I use my classes, I use Git. You know, it could be GitHub, it could be GitLab, it could be whatever, but I use that. You know, and I just do it instead, of, and I don't use an auto grader. I use a testing framework. You know, and this means that my kids know how to make a pull request and work in each other's code, you know, set up unit tests in my classes, in my CS1, CS2, or CS0, CS1, and CS2 classes. That should be everywhere. And why? Because I brought it into there because I saw this is where we integrate a software engineering practice that is beneficial and makes things easier for the college class. So by integrating that software and resident into an existing class and having them work with the professor, having them work with the professors a semester before to develop, so it's kind of misguided there. And I think part of a lot of the reason, well, I mean, it's, I've got to be a little bit arrogant here. I'm not the best classroom teacher. I'm good. I'm above average in the classroom, but there are other things that I do really well. And one is that I have that experience on the professional, you know, the tech side in the industry. Yes, I was there a hundred years ago, but I've kept it current through my students, you know, so I can talk to you, you know, about containers and I can talk to your, you know, that's passe now, that's all 10 years ago, but like I can talk, whatever the fad is, I can talk to you about it. I keep myself current. I'm pretty good at the real CS stuff and I know my teaching, but, and you need people like that to run programs at these companies but invariably, it, they're people who don't have that background, you know, and who want to do good. But it's really, you know, they haven't, you know, or if they taught, they taught for a couple of years. And to be honest, a 10-year teacher, like eight to 10 years is advanced beginner. 15-year teacher is intermediate. 20 and beyond is master. And now this doesn't mean you can't be a great teacher at eight years, but you at eight years compared to you at 15 years is night and day. And that's because the feedback loop is so long. You only teach a specific class once a year. You may teach it five times a day, but after that day, you're not teaching that again. And then next year, it's a different population. So it's going to, you know, like you're on a wobbly floor. And so it takes a huge amount of time. And then those people usually who dedicated that time don't have the technical background because 
you need these weird situations of career changers, but they don't have those. And so they have people who have the best of intentions and who are working, you know, working really hard. And this kind of harks back to something that you asked me before, like between the high school to the college. And everyone talks about the pipeline, the pipeline from K-12 to college to industry. That's the only thing that education should be about. But to be honest, very few people are paying attention to the pipeline. They're all paying attention to the opening of the first pipe. And how do like, you look at when CS0 changed? The intro you know, made a very lightweight course, but nobody, you know, it's like, so it's more accessible and it's more inviting. And I think all of this is wonderful, but just about every program out there forgot about something, CS1 and then CS2. And you've got to make those trends. You know, like, who cares if you're getting great pass rates in CF1 if they all fail CS2 and drop out and feel that they are losers and they can't do this because you didn't pay attention to whether it was a leaky pipe. And so you need people who know that that entire arc and are paying attention. And there aren't that many people doing that. What does plug the leaky pipe, right? Because I've heard this brought up in so many different contexts. You know, I've heard it brought up in the context of diversity in tech. I've heard it brought up in the context of, you know, getting people into programming who might not otherwise have, you know, had exposure to it. Like, you're right that like people often, it seems like, Political forces are primarily focused on the top of the pipeline, getting people in the funnel, but not necessarily what happens afterwards. So what does get someone from A to Z? I mean, I think part of it is you need to really think about a coherent program. And I was very lucky that we were able to do that at STI because we had the AP course written in stone. I mean, not written in stone because we could still teach how we wanted and The AP used to be a full year CS1, CS2. And then when they cut it down to CS1, since we taught CS1, CS2, we had all this time. We still teach or they still teach. But then we were like, when I designed my intro, it was like, what do we need to do before that? And how can it prepare and feed the kids? So it wasn't just we're making this CS0 course. We're making the CS0 course with two things in mind. One, if you never take another CS course, is this going to give you something of value? And two, if you go to the next CS course, which is our CS course, are you going to be prepared? For it? And then we did the same at the other end since we offered AP and the junior year. The problem with high school to college is the high schools and the college you know, are never going to get on the same page because, you know, too many you know, different ends on the graph. You know, like you'll have like um, CS principles, the relatively new AP course. At Hunter, I've had people who've taken a CS principles course who are incredibly well prepared. And I've had people who've taken the CS principles course from another school and they would have been better off with nothing, you know, and then, but also even with the AP, old AP course, the colleges are taking, you know, like, like, again, how do you know what you're going to get? But they're not paying attention to, okay, this is what we are now teaching in CS zero. So what can we expect in CS one? So for example, if you look at the Hunter CS zero, the course is so much better than it used to be. I think it's, it could be changed in certain ways. But the old CS0 was a such a weak course. And the one that they're doing now, which I have nothing to do with. And when I teach CS0 or when I taught CS0 at Hunter, I do my own thing because it's an honors group. But they do a bazillion little tiny mini programs. And then in CS1, the first project in a couple of weeks is, you know, hundreds of long. No one paid attention to that. And so in a lot of ways, it's as simple as saying, let's pay attention to this and then saying, okay, well, maybe we got to ramp things up in the CS0 so they do larger things more a little earlier. Or maybe we got to scaffold it more at the CS1. Okay, so maybe we can't do quite as much in CS1 now, and now we have to move that to CS2, or maybe we even have to drop this, like maybe we don't spend as much time on the merge sort and the quick sort. We just focus on one of them. So you make some decision, but you really have to be honest about your program and you got to go at it, you know, without ego. You know, you can't be like, this is my course and my students always know this. You got to be able to say that are the kids getting what they need? And that's hard to do. And it's really hard to get a department to do that. And that's a problem. And, um, you know, and again, this goes also goes into that the feedback loop. You know, when I started at Hunter, they taught the old CS0, which was very weak, but then they made the new one. But then, you know, I think you could have predicted the problems, but nobody did. Actually, I did predict the problem, but that. But it would take a couple of years to get the data and the feedback on that before you start acting on, you know, and then it's going to feed forward, you know, and, and if they do just make a projection, 
and they just said, well, we anticipate this problem, you know, and then make all these cha- uh, like uh, make all these changes, they could be wrong and have wasted time and effort. It could be worse off. This is also something that, you know, we can't do it. I mean, Harvard can do it because they have the resources, they have money. You know, public school can't do this, but you could basically be like, we're going to double down and hire four times as many TAs during this experiment and we're going to run this section this way. You know, we're going to get our data all in one semester, but it really takes a will to do that. And it really takes, you know, like you've really got to be critical. It's tough because there are a lot of egos. You know, it's like you got the people in a, a typical college of CS department is like, well, you know, we're not going to do anything practical because we're an intellectual institution or all of my students are going to go get a doctorate. And on the other side, it's like, what is that nonsense? We've got to get all our kids into the fan companies. We've got to be. And I'm not saying who's right, but it's personalities. And, you know, it'd be nice to be a Guido, like the benevolent dictator for life. But, you know, and I was able to do that for a while at Stai. That's just a little corner of the world. I've heard different versions of that from different people. Like I know some institutions financially make way more money from grad students than undergrads. And so there's incentive to grow those programs. And like, it's this crazy multi-layered issue. I know that one of the solutions that people frequently bring up as a potential answer to the question is more project-based learning. And I know that this is something that you have a lot of opinions about. Like, where does this fit in? Because, you know, from the outside, when you look at it, it's really easy to sit in industry and be like, yes, of course, people need to make more projects. And, you know, I certainly have my own bias as someone who runs a ton of hackathons, right? But what's your perspective on this whole concept of project-based learning as it fits into CS? I like it in a lot of ways, but it's not the be-all and end-all. There are a number of issues. One is a lot of people, there's project and then there's also discovery, you know, and a lot of times people conflate the two. You know, the idea that you put the kids in front of a computer and they work and magic happens. And what really happens is you got a group of four kids and one kid who can learn on their own or who already knows stuff figures it out. And the others don't really get the development they need. Projects can be great, but there are a lot of issues with them that can be problematic. One, when you're starting at CS0, like, when you take a foreign language, you know, ultimately you're writing essays in that language. In French ones, like Je m'appelle Michel, you know, it's like, we're not writing, we can't really do so many projects in French one. And it's the same thing in computer science. Yes, there are things you can do and you can build programs, but it's going to be with support of some instruction, be it the teacher, you know, be it something you're reading, something you're viewing, and they're going to be small. You know, later on, you can build more interesting, like imagine that if you're learning a new language, like, you know, and basically it'll be like, okay, well, write this in totally new language, you know, like you could do it, but you're probably not. You're probably going to start much smaller. It takes a lot of time to develop strong project-based experience. You got to build the scaffolding. You got to make sure, you know, what do you need? Like if you ever teach people, doesn't matter, kids, adults, whatever. This could be even helping, you know, read her email, you know, and then you just do this. And then you think about it as like, wait, there are like 30 things that I just took for granted that I just did, but you have to build that into the project scaffolding. You know, are they going to, are they going to be able to learn from what they have on their own? You know, like what about, I mean, even stupid things like if you're in, let's say you're at Hunter, I meet the kids, my kids twice a week for an hour and 15. Should they be developing the projects then or should they be doing other things because I may not have as much, you know, like ability to help them based on where they're at the projects? Well, if they're not, how much time are they going to have afterwards and what resources are they going to have? Because this is a public school where a lot of kids have to work. You know, this is not like if you go to elite private school where you have money, yeah, you can go and hang out in the lounge with your laptop and work on this. You can hack on this project for all, you know, all afternoon. I can't. I've got to work at the grocery store to make rent. You know, so that's a problem. If you're in high school, let's say you got 40 minutes a day, you know, so every day you got the startup and the breakdown. And if it's a team, it's even harder. So all of these things are, you know, whenever you hear somebody saying this is the one true way everything should be project based, almost always you're talking to somebody who teaches in a private school with 12 kids in the class because they've got a small enough class and enough time and the resources to do it right. And I'm like, gee, I'd love to do it, but I got 34 kids. And that's a real challenge. Then you have other issues. And I'm giving you all the negatives here. 
And the reason I'm giving you the negatives is because if I can do projects, I love doing projects. But these are all the things we have to overcome. You know, like a lot of people are like, do games. All kids love games. No, they don't. You love games. You know, like when I taught my intro class, they're like, oh, you use Scheme and then you use NetLogo. Oh, I bet all the boys love Scheme because it's all mathy and the girls love NetLogo because it's graphic. No. My kids love Scheme because I love Scheme and it rubs off on them. And my buddy Peter, who's 10 times as smart as I am, his kids love NetLogo because he loves NetLogo. So the teacher influences that. And then beyond that, I've had girls love either, boys, I've had them hate both of them. (laughs) You know, If you're developing into one in-depth project, not everyone's going to be happy. So you have to make sure that it's short enough so you can hit something else the next time. If they're all doing their own project, and I think there's a lot to be said for scratching the itch and having kids self-direct the project, but if they can go totally on their own, that's going to be problematic because are they going to choose something that the scope is too advanced? Is it too simple? Will you be able to support them as an instructor? You know, so the sweet spot is something like we'll do a data project where they have to get data from somewhere and I give them a bunch of sources, but they can select. So you can do movie database, you can do sports, you can do crime statistics, you know, so you give them the freedom, but it's tough. At its core, I think more often than not, if you have kids working in code, that is beneficial. And if you have kids, like a friend of mine said that, you know, when you're teaching computer science, you're either writing a program to solve a problem or to create something. You know, and that's kind of like the Fred Brooks mythical man month that an artist has a canvas, the programmer has the computer, the artist's pigments, oils, brushes, the programmer has a language, you know, and that, and I think he's right about that. You're either solving a problem or you're creating something. And both of these things to be interesting and creative. And when you can engage kids and get them to do that, that's a beautiful thing. Because at the end of the day, when the kids, like, I solved that, or the kids like, I made that. That's amazing. So I think you want to have it as much as you can. And even if you're not always doing great CS, I think like a lot of elementary school teachers are like, well, we're doing programming in the second grade and we're using Scratch. And I'm like, ah, you're using Scratch, but you're not really doing deep programming. You know, fourth and fifth grade. Yes. What you're really doing is you're using Scratch to make a story. You're using it like a programmable PowerPoint where you're making a story and the kids are adding multimedia and they're being creative and they're developing and you're introducing just one or two programming concepts. That's amazing. But it's not like deep algorithm. Like understand what it is. It's an amazing thing. I'm all for Like I love the ideas of the pro- you know, of project-based learning. It can't always practically be done. Like if a kid is in an algorithms class, if they do everything from scratch, they will develop a deeper understanding that this is faster and this is slower and this is better and this is worse or this is faster algorithmically, but in the real world because we built it, this is actually probably what we want to do. But I also know that I just don't have time to do that all the time. And so I've got to kind of call my shots. You know, I got to be like, where's the biggest bang for the buck? And I'm going to do my projects here and here, you know, like, because I just, I have until the end of the semester in their next class, they're going to be expected to be able to do these things. And I don't want these kids to struggle there. Where do like extracurricular things like hackathons or game jams fit into that mental model? The hackathon is interesting. I kind of go this way and that way up and down with hackathons. And believe me, what you've done is really amazing. I think nothing in a vacuum, you know, is the right answer. But like you got hackathons and you've got and I'll put, you know, anything that's creative like that, I'll put in the hackathon vein. And then you've got programming competitions. And I think it's important to have both. But I think the downside of hackathon is you're probably writing bad code. Like this is clearly going to be, which actually is modeling the real world very well. You know, it's like, we're going to be two weeks late. The code sprint, let's go. And I, what I don't like is the advantage of people, you know, who've come in, like I got my library set up and all of that. I'm like, man, like I hate it. Like you're going to win, but this person did a better. So I, I've tried to do things like when I do similar things with my kids, I try to like, let's highlight interesting projects, but I hate it. It's like, well, this, I don't want to make an absolute winner because, but at the end of the day, these are social events for lack of a better word tech geeks like me. And it's an opportunity to celebrate our mutual 
and I want to use this in a positive light, geekiness. It should not be like we had a hackathon once and we almost kicked the kid out because like this is a high school hackathon and this kid exhibited all of the worst tech bros, Silicon Valley, misogyny, you know, and it's like, no, that team isn't winning because this kid isn't winning because we're not going to reward that. But it's to at their best, the celebration. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the football game, the division one school, but for computer creatives. You know, and that's an amazing, beautiful thing. And I think that you've got the programming competitions, which are great for the people that are into competition. That has its own problems. Like, again, you want to come in knowing your algorithm. But the hackathons I love because it's like, particularly, and I haven't been to one since, well, yes, it's pre-COVID. I would frequently judge a couple of New York-based high school hackathons every year. And I love going to them because you get these kids who meet each other for the first time and they're working on something and they're proud of it. Part to me, the most important thing is if you can get not, I think you need a category of judges, but not just judges, but like people to hang out there who aren't mentors, but tech people to just go around and talk to the kids because like people don't realize this. But if a software engineer from wherever, you know, from Twilio, you know, or whatever company like goes in, oh, what do you do? Oh, that's cool. That's like something that I did. You know, like just like a throwaway comment like that. And 10 years later, that kid is going to remember that. You know, and it's going to have that positive impact, you know, and the hackathon creates that environment, you know, and it builds the networking skills or has the potential to build the network where the kids meet each other. And I think that's an amazing thing. I'm not super sold on the 24 hour thing. Maybe this is just some old and I don't know the last time I was up past 10 o'clock. I'm not sold that that's necessarily a good thing or if it would be better to have like two days come early in the morning and then. But the basic concept, you know, I'd love to have like local events. And when I say local events, I know there are local events, but like, with, like one of the things we set up at Hunter, which uh, fell to the wayside during COVID, basically it was um, the kids have a month off, as in many colleges, during January. And Hunter kids are not traveling to Europe. You know, they might take a class. They're not doing a whole lot. You know, if they work during the school year, they might pick up a couple extra shifts, but they probably aren't because those shifts are already held. So they're still just working, but they have more free time. So we had, we called it Code Fest. And what we did is I engaged some tech mentors and it was kind of like a hackathon, but it was over the course of a month. And then we had an event at the end of the month and it was usually held at Google and they just demoed their projects. What we would do is um we had the mentors or other software engineers, they'd rotate group to group. And they demo and they get feedback. And it's like, oh, if you wanted to go on with this, you might, you know, next kind of like, you know, doing the mini pitch and getting the advice. Um, and then we show off one or two and have a little party, you know, and I'm sure some other schools do similar things, but they should all be doing it. You know, so I think these types of events and also since a lot of the schools don't teach a lot of what needs to be learned. The hackathon is probably not going to teach it directly, but the kid is going to go to the hackathon and hopefully they're going to be brought along by a team or by other people, or even if they're a team of newbies with their friends, they'll see what other people are using. And then they're going to be like, you know, we've got to learn this. We got to start putting our code in a repository. We got to start before the net. And I think it can be really important, you know, for that development. You know, it's kind of like in school. It's not all about, you know, there is a thing called extracurriculars and it's important. And I think a hackathon and those types of things, again, one of the limitations is when you have kids at these poorer kids at these public schools, they may not have time to attend or if they do have time to attend, like everyone says, oh, work on a personal project, uh, go to the hackathon and then continue developing it. It's like, like, when am I doing this personal project? I'm taking all my classes. I'm working in the grocer. You know, I'm going into the one room apartment with my family and I gotta, I can't use the computer because my kid brother has, the hackathon can't solve that. The hackathon, I think has some serious benefit. You know, the downside, as I said, is just like, you know, I wish they weren't 24 hours, <laughs> but I wish there was more of a, that other things were more equal. This was something that I loved about the previous Hunter administration. You know, Hunter's president was like, I can give mini grants to students. If we have students that want to, that can't go to a hackathon, not because they can't afford it, because they already have some money for entry fees, but because they can't miss their shifts, I can give them a grant to cover it. Or if they got to take this mini course to learn this thing, we can give it. And she was amazing. Like just going that extra mile. 
And I just think like people don't realize, you know, like, you know, first world problems, you know, like one of the things in being involved in public education and even at Stuyvesant, they're high performing kids, but there are a lot of low income kids there. But I think it's so opened my eyes being in public schools and public college to how unlevel the playing field is. You know, and, and as much as we do, you know, everyone says the next thing will be a, the next equalizer. But if this thing is a good thing, you can bet all the rich kids are going to be getting it first and more of it. I don't have an answer to that. Like, I wish there were a way that we could get more people access, you know, again, to the types of things that, that these extracurriculars give. But, but yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying, I love them and I can't wait to start going back to be a judge. And, you know, now that I have time after I retired and they're going to be in person again, or they've been in person the last couple of years. I think I agree with both the positives and the negatives of what you're describing. And I think, you know, one of the things that has been interesting to me about seeing them at so many different universities and schools is that when you have a really skilled, engaging teacher, you get some of those creative elements and excitement in the classroom. Not all schools have that. Yeah. And often hackathons or, or similar, you know, extracurriculars are the thing that like, makes tech or coding or computer science fun for someone and not a purely academic pursuit, which not everyone is drawn to. And this also harkens back to something we talked about before. And this is where the knowledgeable K-12 teacher or particularly high school teacher can make such a difference. Maybe they don't want to be a programmer, but there are plenty of careers in tech that need some, like you have a lot of people doing DevRel, which is you know, they may not be living in the code all day. And there are people who do user experience. And there are people who do, you know, they're all the industry goes, we want to hire specialized project managers. Okay, now we want to hire only software engineers who will make it the project manager. Now we want, there are tons of roles, even though at its core, the hackathon is a coding event, there's exposure to all that other stuff as well. And that's, again, going back to the K-12 teacher, that's where a high school teacher, yeah, you're going to take CS1 and CS2, and that's all programming all the time. But here are the things that it will branch out to, or here are other things that maybe you don't want to go down that line and go in another line. But I think the hackathon is wonderful in that it gives you, you know, project product from inception to delivery or to buggy delivery to hackable demo. Yeah, more often than not. I know we're going a little long here. I think one of the things that you said about hackathons, I want to dig into a little bit while we have some time left, is that this idea that it's like an opportunity to learn by doing. And I was reading a piece that you wrote about this, about how when people were going through CS classes or learning to code 20, 30 years ago, that there was a forcing function to learn by doing and understand what's going on on a deeper level. And now a lot of that has been abstracted away to be more accessible and easier, but that perhaps there's something lost in that process. And even when I think back to like when I was getting started, right, like I couldn't deploy something with a Git push, you know, like I had to install Linux first. And so I'm curious, like, how has that changed CS education, the ease of writing code and making it do something you want? I think that's there definitely has been a change. I think that one of the biggest changes, though, is um, they know less, but it opened the door for more. Like back then, everyone had to know things and do things, but it was the old boys club. You know, it was the usual suspect. And now, you know, the entry funnel is much wider. But I think people have to remember that, like, this is not, you know, this generation doesn't necessarily, they don't know things, they use the tech, but they don't know the tech. You know, so we've got this really wide funnel, but we can't make these assumptions. Like they don't know what a file system is. They don't know what a file, like these are all because it's all automatic, but that's okay as long as we don't expect them to know that. I think one of the biggest issues, two things really, grades and the need to finish a sequence. You know, like this course, like one of the beautiful things about the hackathon environment, you can hammer out a technology that you don't know. And if you don't get to where you want it to be, who cares? You know, like you've gone from here to here, you've learned a whole bunch of stuff, you'll finish it off later and learn the rest of it. But we don't do that in education. In education, it's all got to be done by this time. And this goes back to the project based and also to the discovery side, where kids can't like hammer at it, you know, and take the time to 
let's look this up in the docs. Oh, these docs are horrible. This isn't how it should be. Let's try this instead. Oh, can you help? You got this working. What did you do? And which is another issue, which we, you know, oh, you got to do this yourself, or it's cheating, or it's plagiarism until you graduate, in which case everybody, you know, like, which is ridiculous, which is why I've always been like, no, bring them over. Just put a little comment saying, Susie, help me, you know, I mean, but it's, um, you know, it's, um, what do they call it? Productive struggle, you know, whereas, you know, you learn the best where you're struggling, but not too much. And that this is something that as an educator, you want to work into your scaffolding when you're teaching things. And you got to be careful about this. You know, I can't tell you how many times, and particularly with Pythons, you know, where I've made this great project, um, I've adapted it from Java, or I does it in C in another class, and like I have the intent, and it's going to guide them here, and they're going to hit this wall, and they're going to, you know, here are the two or three things that they can do. And I'm like, yes, this is going to be awesome. And then like there are two or three kids, like after five minutes, oh, I used the dot whatever method, you know, and it totally defeated the, and it was, um, you know, it defeated the entire intent of the exercise uh, because they did know it or they found it out too quickly. And it also, it took away the aha moment for them, you know, and that's, it's tough. And this is why you really, it's okay. You know, like I blew it. You know, I talked to the class like, hey, I blew it. Okay, this is, you know, and then we, and we you know, live to teach another day and you fix it the next time. And that's important. If you're going to have a career in education, you don't have to do this. But if you're going to be any good, it's okay to say, I don't know, or I blew it. I hate this online where every teacher talks about their wonderful this and their wonderful that, and I'm sure they are. But it's like not every lesson is going to be Jaime Escalante, John Keating, Captain, my captain. You know, like you'll have the magic ones, but there are going to be those days where it's just this is not working and you got to get through those. And that's okay because then you just fix it the next day. But you got to know your stuff, you know, and if you don't know it, you got to be willing to say, I don't know it. Let me learn. You know, So then I'm like, okay, let me dive in. What are these things I didn't know about the current you know, version of Python? And then the next year, I was able to scaffold that lesson so that the discovery worked much better. But it comes down to they know a lot more, but they don't know computer science. And so as long as, or they rarely know computer science, this was one of the reasons why at Stuyvesant, they use Scheme as the first language, because that way, you know, the hotshot kid who's like, I've been programming for five years and I know 13 different languages, they could do very rudimentary stuff. They start at a level playing field. And every now and then I have a kid who did scheme. They went to this program, CTY, Center for Talented Youth, really good program from what I can tell. They used to at least, maybe they still do a, a scheme-based programming course. But the kids who all had the legit background were like 99 out of 100 of those kids. And I can say that because I've taught over a thousand kids that. They were always cool. You know, they always got it. They knew, don't give away the store, you know, and they would become like junior TAs. You know, you learn over time what the kids know, what they don't know, what tools they use. You know, like, oh, well, they'll use Instagram for this and it'll work in this way. And this means all of this background, you know, and then, you know, and then, of course, I could do this. I could make some bad modern reference. And, you know, I got the dad thing going for me. So, you know, they'll just like, they'll just like shake their heads sadly at me. And But it, it works, you know, like that's the dynamic. You know, you miss sometimes you'll make an assumption that they'll all know something or that none of them will know it. And you know what? That sucks if you're teaching one semester. But if you're teaching as a career, it's like, you know, you feel stupid, but then you move on. You know, it's like anything else. You know, the joke, I think, at like Facebook or Google or whatever, when you intern is you get to break it once, you know, and it's like you break, you know, like whatever you do, something stupid in production. Everyone on your team laughs at you, you know, good natured laugh. And then you move on. So I think a note I want to end on is what are you most excited and optimistic about right now in terms of where CS and education is going? And I know there's a lot of things to not be optimistic about. But I'm curious, like, what are you most excited about right now? Well, it's hard to be excited because I'm like, I have business cards that say computer science education curmudgeon. I need to find a partner so we can be like Statler and Waldorf, you know, you know be the Muppets up in the, up in the balcony and like ridicule everyone. I've always been like, hope for the best, expect the worst. It's not that I'm pessimistic, but I, you know, I want to be prepared for that side. I think there are there are two things that, that really do excite me, but they excite me with concern. One is that computer science is becoming a real field at the K-12 level. I think that certain things are going overboard. There are some states that are doing better, some states that are doing worse. But the 
the subject area has a seat at the table. And I think that's really important. And, um, you know, my hope is that it doesn't go the way of other education where we've missed the boat on a lot of other things because we're, we're newer. So maybe we won't. That's such an important thing because it's bringing opportunity, you know, like, like society by and large are now all pretty much agrees. You know, there was like a bipartisan computer science resolution a couple of years ago. I mean, like bipartisan anything is big that this is important for all of our kids. And I think that's one. And the related thing to that, and this is a little bit newer, is that, and it's not just for people becoming software engineers. It's for everybody, and it can be for the artist and the poet and the physicist and the historian and the author. Oh, yeah, and also be a software engineer. I think that's really exciting because when I started, there were like, I was one of the only ones in New York, certainly the only program in New York. There were a couple of other people and like it was so few and far between. It was a very unique school situations. And now it's, you know, now we have government resolutions, you know, we've got big funding for efforts. And I think that's a really exciting thing. I like it. A good positive note to end. Any any other parting thoughts before we uh finish up here? I really enjoyed the everything you had to share, but Thank you so much for putting me on this. The only problem is I listen to your podcast when I run and I can't listen to this one now. So I got to listen <laughs> to something else. And I really it's, I enjoy it. I appreciate the invite. I love the series. I'm honored to be part of it. You know, and now as I enter my retirement, I hope to be able to support efforts like Major League Hacks and other awesome initiatives moving forward. I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. I'll add a link to your blog uh, when we post the show because I I love reading, but hopefully other people will too. And uh, if people enjoyed listening, definitely subscribe. We're putting these out once a week. So happy hacking. All right. (laughs) The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking, and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking!